0: Welcome back, Ag Watchers, to another episode. We've got another special guest on, Andrew Henderson, uh, and we're on to talk about biosecurity today. Probably uh, an interesting topic at the moment, with BSE running rampant with its two cases in Brazil, and you know, rampaging through England with one case of mad cow disease and African swine fever, foot it's and mouth wild. disease. So, coronavirus, coronavirus, in Victoria, in Victoria. Yeah. so good time to talk biosecurity, and so we've got Andrew Henderson on. Andrew, tell us in a short, sharp summary who you are, what you do.
1: Oh, thanks, guys. Um, yeah, Andrew Henderson is my name. I uh, have a little, well, I basically work for myself. I um, uh, run a small consultancy business called AgSecure, uh, which basically... Uh, specialises in um, specialised projects for government and industry, but with a main focus on helping government and industry uh, work better together, uh, mostly in the agriculture sector, but um, increasingly I find myself uh, doing that type of work in other uh, sectors as well. And then uh, for my sins, I um, uh, chair an organisation called the Safe Meat Advisory Group, uh, which is a part of the broader Safe Meat family, which is uh, which is a partnership effectively between industry and government that looks at food safety uh, and hygiene in and the policies that sit behind our integrity systems for the red meat and livestock sector. Uh, so various levels of safe meat, but uh, yeah I kind of chair the middle um, part of it, which is the uh, the doing function. and uh, representatives of the basically the entirety of the red meat and livestock supply chain sit on that group. Um, and it takes up uh, a lot of my time. <laughs> uh, and uh, and then, yeah, otherwise we run a little hobby farm here and muck around with a few horses and and um, yeah, try and spend as much time with the family as possible. So that's basically me.
2: Andrew, does safe meat cut across, you said red meat, but safe meat um, from that kind of biosecurity level looks at, that's including pork and chicken as well as the beef and sheep meat? Or, or is that different? Yeah,
1: one of those, absolutely. I neglect always neglect to mention pork. I should... Um, Mortified, I'm going to leave them out, but um, yeah, uh, APL is uh, Australian Pork Limited is represented on Safe Meat as well. Um, uh, poultry, no, uh, not at this stage. We do have observers, um, that sit around the Safe Meat table, such as uh, Wool well, Dairy are full members, um, given their role in the supply chain, of course. Um, and then wool producers have joined, uh, I think, last year or the year before as observers as well. So you know, have included a a few other sectors that have obviously that buying to the livestock sector supply chain. So
0: so and also Sheep Producers Australia as well?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Well that's that's a good segue.
0: uh, because Matthew here has been selected to be on the an independent member of the policy council for Sheep Producers Australia. So congratulations. I don't have any sound files for clapping, but you know
1: (laughs) congratulations the audience can
2: the audience can imagine the raucous
1: applause right now just you know so that's an important role
0: so so andrew at the moment like so basically you know obviously safe meat is looking at things like traceability and and biosecurity and it's looking at from both a point of view of animal health but also human health as well would that be correct
1: Uh, yeah look safe meat (laughs) certainly focuses on policies that affect food safety in the supply chain right so everything from um you know, production practices that sit around use of animal medicines and stuff like that um, through to, yeah, obviously biosecurity issues, um, you know, as it pertains to production and, and making sure that the meat that winds up on, on your shelf, uh, you know, both domestically and into the export market is obviously as safe as it needs to be. Um, so, yeah, it got formed back in the late 90s, and you know, and basically seeks to fill that, that function where there can be that, that um, mechanism where industry and government come together to cooperate, particularly, I think back then it was created really in the context um, for the context of a crisis to, you know, um, enable a food safety crisis to be well managed between industry and government, so. So not not just to
2: to protect obviously the domestic consumer, but also uh, I presume Andrew to ensure um, with our international customers, which obviously certainly from the red meat perspective, both cattle and sheep meat now more than seventy percent of the product on a given year goes offshore. It's also mm-hmm. to, I guess, um, you know, ensure that our products uh, are known globally to be safe and to be, you know, traceable. And if we did have a break, that we're on top of things, kind of thing.
1: Oh, that's that's yeah, definitely right. So you know, we basically trade on our reputation, and um, you know, for better or for worse, we've uh, marketed ourselves on that and marketed ourselves on having the most robust systems in the world. Um, And now that's an expectation that our trading partners have of us Um, sort of set the pace globally with programs like the NLIS uh, and so on. And and so you've got a commitment now to uphold the integrity of those programs. Um, You know, and I think a lot of this stuff, particularly with regard to the industry's traceability programs and why we have a regulated meat and livestock sector goes back to the Royal Commission in the 70s and and, um, you know, things of that nature that led to a requirement for there to be some government intervention and, and regulatory intervention in, the, in that marketplace to ensure that that product is what we say it is. So, yeah. and, and,
0: and I think we can see the value in, in, in traceability and whatnot when we look at the likes of what's happening just now in, in Brazil. And I was being a bit yeah. sort of facetious to begin with. At the moment, they've got two cases of, of BSE or atypical yeah. BSE. Which yeah. has caused them to lose quite a few of their marketplaces. Potentially only a temporary, you know, loss of those industries or all mm-hmm. those markets. But it is one of those things that if you lose a market, it's it's bad for your overall industry. Oh, At yeah. the moment, NIS NI, and EID tags is, you know, are being pushed out throughout the country. NIS is obviously compulsory everywhere, but electronic tags are not necessarily. Uh, they're not in all states yet just no, just no. just victoria what, what's your what's your view of the eid tags is that something that should be mandatory
1: yeah look we've we've gone through a pretty exhaustive process of um making recommendations for improvements to the nlis to all governments via the national biosecurity committee which is a subcommittee of what was admin um, before the whole national cabinet uh, scenario has kind of come into being and thrown a few of those mechanisms into question and one of the one of the recommendations that we put to the national biosecurity committee after probably 18 months or two years worth of carefully considered work was that uh, a national rollout of eid for all not just sheep and goats but for all fmd susceptible livestock species should be uh, brought in and or phased in i should say uh, and mandated by governments to to basically cover off on that risk and and uh, ensure that the system, as a part of a bunch, uh, of, of several other reforms, is, is working as effectively as it needs to. I think- would, um,
0: would that include PEGs as well? Yeah, it would.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So PEGs participate um, in the NOI system, but with their own, um, I guess, database and system called Pig Pass. Um, and the idea, obviously, would be to try and achieve as much integration as, as is physically possible with pig pass. Uh, but there's also, you know, a notion that a long-term objective would be to have a single system. Uh, you know, for the pers- purposes of um, efficacy and efficiency across all species, and, and um, you know, efficiency of management and administration. Because the whole point is to make sure you've got a system that's easy enough to interact with and efficient enough to interact with. That if there's an incursion, say so of FMD Um, that a contact tracer, if you will, um, that's trying to locate cohorts of affected animals can can locate them and and draw a circle around them basically as quickly and effectively as possible. So the less accurate your system, um, the more, uh, I guess, geographical territory you have to take into that circle. Um, and in some cases, you basically draw a circle around the eastern seaboard of Australia if your system's not that accurate. And I think that's what's sort of started to become known with the with the with the current sheep system, and it's not working as effectively as it as it could. Uh,
0: so how, how how long does it take? Like I know that there there is tests and there are simulations, but how long would it take to if there was an FMD outbreak in yeah. Western Victoria? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How long would it take to do like a full contract trace? Is it at, at, with the current systems?
1: It, it, it depends on a range of variables. So if, if it was in Western Victoria, they they we conducted an evaluation exercise uh, a couple of years ago. Well, no, it was March 2020. Now, which basically uh, ran that scenario and found that 98% of the sheep in that exercise uh, would have been traceable back to their farm of origin within 24 hours. So that's standard 1.1 of what they call the National Livestock Traceability Performance Standards. So that dictates where the system's supposed to be at in terms of its performance. Uh, The mob-based system is um, obviously uh, labour-intensive, paper-based and far less accurate. And so we really probably don't know. um, uh, And I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how long it would take, uh, but suffice to say that... um, Less, less accurate.
0: Longer and less accurate. If you're written on paper, which yeah, is, yeah, yeah.
1: So you know, a good percentage of those animals would be able to be traceable, and, and in fact, all of them could probably be traced back to their farm of origin, given enough time. Um, but the issue is time.
2: Mm.
1: So quickly, uh, again, you quickly.
2: Because I say the because you said a mob-based system, which is basically what's used for sheep and goats outside of. You know, the victoria with the eid that's it um, the states yeah. have got mob yeah. base but that, that pig system as well also goes with the with the herd you know so you know, as they're transported it, it kind of is attached to the herd rather than to the individual people like we have with say cattle um that are, mm. that are mm. you know, absolutely identified down to the to the individual animal um, yeah so so ideally um and obviously there's cost and you know application facts of how to roll this out but yeah, in an ideal world, you'd have every single animal with an electronic tag to be able to identify them you know, individually.
0: In an ideal world, Matt, you'd have no animal diseases. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to be specific,
2: yeah.
0: Matt. Matt, just what before we start, that's, before that's, we go on, Matt. Matt, could you turn off your video a second because I think your internet connection's pretty poor. Alright, no, Uh, So that will help improve his sound quality. Uh, In terms of, you you wrote a a, a piece, uh, Andrew, uh, in the last few weeks about food security, uh, security Mm. biosecurity, the the new sort of uh, formula of uh, food security, and and basically basically it was implying that biosecurity equals food security. Yeah. And that, that probably is the case, you know, but, but do you think that the last like the last sort of year of, of COVID we've seen food security around the world become a bigger issue, especially with sort of just in time supply chains? Mm. Uh, and you you're based in Canberra, you in in that policy space. Are people mm-hmm. in government taking food security that little bit more seriously than they would have done in the past?
1: I think so. Uh, I think so. And if they're not, they certainly need to be. Um, I think we have certainly taken our food security for granted for a long time in this country. And the wake up call for us has been COVID where we've, you know, seen those just in time supply chains result in everything from empty supermarket shelves to, you know, shortages of chemical, um, you know, in the ag space and fertilizer inputs and so on and so forth, which we require to be as, as productive as we need to be or want to be. Um, it's definitely, from, from where I sit like you know it, it seems to have definitely thrown a, a greater impetus on it but um, i feel personally that we don't take the role of biosecurity in underpinning food security and then you know in that argue, in that article i argue by extension our national its contribution to our national security seriously enough and i and i certainly don't think that the central agencies of any government uh, when I say the central agencies i mean finance and treasury um even some of our friends in the intelligence community appreciate how important uh necessarily our um our agricultural production is to our to our you know national prosperity so you know we we say that it's important we love to talk up how well ag's doing and so on but if that's that's quite well understood within the ag sector i don't know that it's that well understood outside of the ag sector and in some ways that's the point of that article is to try and really grab the attention of folks outside of agriculture to say, you know, there are systems and structures in place that underpin the um, viability of the agriculture sector in a big way uh, in terms of ensuring our market access. If they fall over, we're in a world of hurt and not just over here in agriculture, that means uh, we're going to have a significant implication for the national economy. Uh, and, you know, by extension, um, you know, the the um, our food security as well.
2: So, Andrew, what are the big? What would be the big-ticket items in your mind that that we should really be focusing on nationally to get sorted out as soon as possible to make sure that you know we're, we're kind of on top of things with regards to biosecurity slash food security perspective. Well, the the big
1: one that I focus on, Matt, obviously, is traceability and uh, our traceability systems. Right. So, you know, we've seen the the government uh, make a 400 odd million dollar commitment to um, various um, biosecurity functions in the latest budget so there is obviously you know a a, a high degree of awareness of the importance of biosecurity within the agriculture department and obviously they've been able to make a sufficiently um, sound enough argument to the central agencies and and the prime minister's office and so on to be able to achieve a pretty reasonable um, budget allocation which has been fantastic but uh, our argument certainly is that we have this system called the NOIS, which is uh, vitally important, you know, in terms of underpinning market access and will only um, become more and more important. That's just in the red meat and livestock uh, sector, but you've got traceability broadly becoming more and more of an imperative for every other agriculture commodity as our trading partners start to scrutinise our supply chains much more closely for a range of different reasons and increasingly things like modern slavery becoming issues and and uh and uh, environmental stewardship practices and all that sort of stuff so you know ensuring that you've got a robust traceability system is pretty paramount in making sure that you've got um maintaining those market acts market maintaining that market access let alone achieving new market access and then you know as we've talked about um, being able to respond you know in, in the instance of a of a, a biosecurity incursion, which interestingly, um, the chief veterinary officer of the Commonwealth, Dr. Mark Schiff recently released some probability work that some very smart folks um, put together that are obviously a lot smarter than I am about the likelihood of um, one of, or, or four diseases of significance being incurred in Australia in the next um, five years. And FMD was one of those uh, diseases and they class that as having a 9% probability of being incurred here uh, in the next five years. So you're basically yes, one saying in a one in ten chance, yeah, a one in ten chance of FMD in this country in the next five years. And if we pause for a moment and think about the implications of what that would mean, like everything stops,
0: you know. And I, and, and and one of one of our one of our recent guests, you know, made a complaint, uh, Ryan Hoiberg, about me going off on tangents and, no. and 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 for me talking about the old country too much. Uh, but FMD is obviously something that has made a major impact upon, you know, the society in, in, in Scotland. You know, oh, we yeah, had Dumfries yeah. D- D- and Galloway, foot and mouth disease in back in 2001, pretty horrific. It caused a huge amount of impacts, you know, on, on livelihoods of farmers, although a lot of farmers did quite well of it, to be honest. Uh, mm. But things like tourism, you know, you don't want to go you expect to see the beautiful picturesque God's country of Scotland. Mm. You don't mm. expect to see, you know, funeral pyres of, uh, of beasts getting shot in the fields. And, yeah. and there was obviously, and I think foot and mouth disease would be far worse now, the impacts of it than it was then, because back then nobody had a camera phone, nobody yeah. had video footage. And, and then you've got that social yeah. license issue, but, but the impact on the UK was, don't hold me on this, but I think it was about fifty billion pounds, give or take. But there's been that's some good. there's been some research. that's about 50, million, $50 billion dollars would be the impact worst case scenario, of an outbreak in in Australia for foot and mouth disease. Mm.
1: Well, that that figure is nearly ten years old. Mm. So that was modeled back in
2: two thousand uh, and twelve. Before yeah, we the, uh, before we saw the before we saw the. Doubling of you know, cattle and sheep price in Australia. So exactly, just on the basis of the price alone, you could probably say that's closer to 100 being now then at least. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, what you mentioned, there was there was four that were were pinpointed as, as potential diseases. I presume one of them was ASF. I think it's one. Yeah, ASF. As well. um, I'm sure.
0: ASF. Surely, the probability of ASF must be higher than one in ten. Twenty
1: one percent. Yeah, um, okay. And then African horse sickness was 13%, foot and mouth 9%, and lumpy skin disease was 8%. So in total, there was a 42% probably cumulative total of, of, of one of those At least one of those, yeah. Next, yeah. I mean, and one of the arguments that I've tried to make in that article is that this, this, this needs to really wake up call for everybody who participates in the agriculture supply chain that sits outside of the policy and decision-making frameworks of the sector which is obviously the vast majority of people. But I mean, if you, if you take that, those figures to any business in any context, to the, to the, to the, um, to the audit and risk committee of any board in the country and say, Hey, there's a one in 10 chance of your business being worth nothing in five years, Hmm. then surely you're obliged to do whatever you need to do to mitigate that risk. You know, that's far higher than anybody would be comfortable with. And, um, and I am uh, very proud of the agriculture sector and how well we've been doing and, and uh, certainly it's been riding a lot of highs despite some bumpy patches and so on um, but I think people need to you know need to be very prudent and keep in mind on what systems underpin that performance and are uh, the fail-safe and, and systems that protect our um, you know our industry so.
0: but those fail-safe sort of systems it's I guess it's the responsibility of everyone isn't it from mm-hmm. and I'm yeah. talking about you know, the tourists coming back from nepal the yeah. uh, the tourists come back from africa from kenya or wherever else the biosecurity security at, at the border you know that the, the yeah. farm the farm worker who takes in their lunch to 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 the farm it's a responsibility mm-hmm. of everyone to maintain that because because yeah. at the moment we're, we're in a lucky situation at the moment where you know other than other than i guess things like virus is quite endemic in in cattle but the reality is that most our industry is quite secure from, from a food point of view in terms of cl- that clean and green and, you know, disease-free image. Whereas mm. there's not a lot of countries around the world now that can claim that. Even Germany can't mm. claim that with their African swine fever. But, but I guess, have we been saved a little bit? We, we were really worried back in 2018, uh, 19 and 20 about African swine fever mm. doubly so because Matt and I own a pig farm
1: so yeah, we've, yeah. <laughs> got a,
0: we've got we've got a conflict
1: there small commercial interest yeah <laughs> uh,
0: but 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 the reality is that you know there was African swine fever found in huge numbers of samples taken at airports you know with, yeah. with with tourists bringing in sausages and yeah and my advice is always to to people overseas is you can get sausages and you can get dumpling in Australia Mm, so so mm. you don't need to bring it in. Uh, but have we been sort of giving a bit of a, uh, a boost almost by COVID to an extent? Because there's not, there's not only, there's very few people coming into Australia now. And
1: yeah, I de- imagine tu-
0: tourists would have been one of those. Major. Oh, definitely, so,
1: yeah, yeah. COVID has certainly, let, let's say COVID has certainly reduced the risk in one pathway which is which is passenger travel right um but it hasn't reduced the risk in in terms of um, natural pathways to our northern border you know let's not yeah. forget how close we are to our northern neighbors um and uh, and notwithstanding obviously air and sea freight are still you know coming into the country um you know with significant numbers and international travel is going to resume at some point in the not too distant future once they um you know whatever they whenever they get it together um, it will start up again, and so in, in a sense, COVID presents the perfect opportunity for us to make sure that we have these systems to reset. Um, yeah, absolutely, to work to, to be working as as absolutely um, well as they possibly can be. So.
2: I guess um, you know, it, to a degree, it almost seems as though there's a combination of maybe a bit of a bit of luck, but also the fact that we've got a. A, a, a an ocean border around the whole of the country. And yeah. and you know that we do we do at the border points do um take it very seriously, that biosecurity coming through. That's that's yeah. been one reason why we've been able to hold things out. But it, you know it sounds as though it's just a matter of time that something will get through eventually. Um, and therefore we need to have the internal response ready to go. Uh, you know, if we do, I, I remember years ago I spent some time in the UK, living in the UK, so I can have my own UK-based anecdotes, Andrew. That's um, have yourself. <laughs> but I was, I because that was I when I moved when I moved there to live in London. Uh, it was probably the first time that a boy from Dahanong you know, had ever been out of the country, really. Um, so it was all to me. But I remember then doing a bit of travel in and out of Europe, and had friends that we knew in Europe that would come to visit. And they'd bring obviously stuff with them as a gift, and, and there's a lady one time that came in from Turkey with a whole heap of food product. and I just you know I, I just couldn't believe you could bring food into the country so easily, you know um, through through the airport, but because because of, of living in Australia, but it's it's fairly common in other countries.
0: Do you, do you think though, if you if you compare Australia, yeah, mm. do you think because Australia because agriculture has for such a long time been such an impressive part of the overall economy. For a long time you know up until very recently everybody was connected to agriculture in some way but but the reality is that if you go th- like i've never like i'm living in europe i never got my bags checked for for food ever you know and it was never taken as a serious thing and you sort of you know that border watch program or border security or whatever is massively popular in the uk and you know my uh, granddad david auntie julie and and my mother they always talk about how it is a case of you know how crazy are these Australians like how, how mm. strict do they take you know biosecurity because it's just not seen as a thing mm. and I just I just wonder if you know if you were to give a ranking surely we'd have to be at the top of the top of the chain when it comes to you know passenger biosecurity
1: we'd be up there with New Zealand probably it would be you know a country that takes it at least as equally as seriously as we do uh, you know so their, their economy is even more heavily weighted towards agriculture so they've got probably more to lose um, if they cop some of these diseases but the thing to remember is that there's also we also fall into a um an assumption or a false sense of security that those systems that operate at the border and because they are quite visible um you know are going are going to protect us and are going to the reality is They've done a very good job in conjunction, as you say, Matt, with our natural advantages. We're geographically dislocated from the rest of the world, um, which is, you know, fortunate in a lot of ways for a lot of different reasons. Um, uh, but you know, when you think about the the percentage of, of border interactions with passengers is is very low. It's even lower with air and sea freight because you know the government simply does not have the resources, and will never have the resources to. Uh, to be able to intercept or inspect every single piece of cargo that comes over the border. So the percentage is, is incredibly low of what is actually looked at. So they, that's why they, they invest a lot of money, in, you know, increasing amounts of money into intelligence, uh, particularly pre-border intelligence. So, you know, the origin of, of, of freight um, and even passengers and so on. So they're intervening more on high-risk pathways and so on and applying their resources in as smarter way as they can. So applying what small uh, limited resources they have in as smarter way as they can. In order to try and you know mitigate the bulk of that risk, but if you think about you know why you why you still hear heaps of uh, news stories about gang-related violence and seeing automatic weapons collected off the street, they don't get sold those weapons in in shops, do they? So they come into the country somehow. somehow and in yeah. a lot of ways they they come in you know via Australia Post. Even there's been scandals in the past where you know they've they've picked up um, and the same deal with drugs, right? So it's a numbers game. So it, there's, there's no difference with regard to biosecurity and you know seeing. All sorts of really interesting incursions, like brown laundry—I longic- oh, forget what they're called longicorn um, beetle that's, that, that, yeah. was, that was discovered in a. Um, I'm not sure if it was that beetle, but one that was discovered in fridge packaging in I think yeah. it was in Canberra recently. Was yeah. it was a capra beetles. Cap- Yeah, Capra beetles, yeah. There was a mulberry so, 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 something. So, so. There's all of stuff They didn't, stuff they
2: didn't even have. Um, they didn't even have a dog in Darwin until yeah. ASF started to yeah. approach towards towards the northern borders of Australia and then then there was a brainwave that oh hang on I think we might need a sniffer dog based up in Darwin so that they can at least you know stop some product coming through from there not that, not that Darwin's the biggest airport of us you know for Australia in terms of international travel there's enough coming through to cause a problem you,
0: you mentioned uh, I think you mentioned about policy in, in Canberra mm. and what I mentioned yeah. about food security and I think you mentioned about the, like security you know policy and whatnot yeah I've I read a, a piece uh, this would have been a year ago about the potential for what's the term agri-terrorism I think it was called yeah yeah is that like and and for those listeners agri-terrorism is you know disrupting agricultural supply chains through disease or other sort of factors to to reduce food security or to damage an industry I guess you could say we've had it in Australia with the uh, the needles. Needles, and, needles and strawberries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is is that a real? And we've had a lot of packets of seeds delivered from various yeah. countries that have rocked up on people's doorsteps. Yeah. Is that is that a true risk? Is that something that the the the, the government is is actually concerned about?
1: Yeah, d- definitely. And, and there's a, there's a, the Commonwealth released their Commonwealth uh, Biosecurity 2030 document recently earlier this year, and it's worth a look because it it articulates um, some of these risks of which that is is certainly one, biological uh, and and, um, attacks on agri-food supply chains and so on. Because as people start to realise or appreciate the intrinsic link between a country's food security and its national security, then it starts to make sense to go after a country's capacity to be able to feed and clothe themselves in an attempt to destabilise them for whatever reason you might have. And, you know, we know that there are many historical um, um, examples of, of the linkage between food security and conflict, food insecurity and conflict particularly, um, and happening for a range of different reasons. In the Middle East, it's, it's been linked to um, drought, Spring. for example. Yep. Yeah, that's right. The, the taco, ta- taco rights in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, you know, notwithstanding, it's... it's um, it's, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that you know, we, we, sh- we, we uh, may be vulnerable um, to that type of thing. And so it makes sense, like, and, and make no mistake, I'm not, I'm certainly not arguing that a traceability system is, uh, you know, and a biosecurity system it is designed to broadly prevent as much as possible, right? Um, but the reality is our traceability system is like a fallback me- mechanism. It's not going to stop you getting FMD or something like that That's or right. any other you know, type of disease, but it's going to help you respond as quickly as possible. And the, the stakes are pretty high. Um, you know, Patrick Hutchinson from the, uh, the meat processes uses a, uses a line that I find quite pertinent. That's if you break our annual sales of, of red meat down into a weekly figure, it's plus $300 million every week worth of you know, red meat sales right, so if we're out of our export markets for a week, that's a, that's plus 300 million bucks that's not being earned um, by the sector, by the national economy. And you put that in the context of the meat industry being the largest regional employer, so on and so on. So, you know, for every week that we're out of export markets, it's a huge cost. And so, you know, it brings it home to people.
0: And that's, uh, I've got to go off another tangent again, so Ryan, Ryan Hoiberg can send me a letter of complaint. But a couple of years ago, I was lucky to go to uh, Nepal uh, to do the Real time foot and mouth disease training. Yeah, yeah. And what, what, what? And it was good to, you know, spend a lot of time with a lot of vets, a lot of government vets, and obviously my interest is markets and 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 the, and the cost of things. And I just what worried me most was the fact that you know, even using that, if we use that figure of fifty billion, yeah, yeah. A, as the loss from foot and mouth disease, there's there's a continued issue like if, if we had food and mouth disease in australia it would cause that 50 billion but it would also have a long-term effect yeah because it all is predicated on how quickly mm. a, we can eradicate even if even if we had food and mouth and eradicated it quite quickly we still wouldn't have access to a lot of markets especially That's those right. risk-averse markets immediately yeah. So yeah. you're talking, like in the UK, it was years before yeah. the market yeah. was reopened. And the yeah. UK was actually quite quick at getting fit mouth disease.
2: Same for BSC. When the, when the US um, had the outbreak of BSC, they lost the Japanese market for, I think, uh, three or four years. Um, yeah. So, you know, and the, from a beef perspective, Japan's our biggest our biggest market, you know? So mm. we're talking significant, um, significant amounts of dollars uh, that could be lost fairly quickly. And-
0: and, that, and that's the thing, like the 300 million is is a lot, but I think it could be mm. worse, you know, like because it's the length of time. It's that 300 million times 52, you know, then mm. 104 weeks. And it's and it's pretty horrific. And every, every other market you sell to, you're only going to be able to sell to cheaper and cheaper markets.
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, you, you, you can forget about the conversation of attaining premiums because we're selling the best product in the world. We're just wanting to sell the product. And um, someone politely reminded me after I'd published that article where I would sort of talked about, you know, wiping 70% of the value off your industry, um, because that's, you know, I guess I just tied that to the, you know, the um, the, the loose percentage of, of the ratio of exports, what we export. But someone reminded me politely that it would actually be much more than that because, you know, all of that product's got to go somewhere and that's obviously going to have an impact on our, on our domestic market uh, as well. Um, So supply
0: supply and demand
1: yeah that's right and so look the the the, i guess the the intent of the intent of the the linkage between biosecurity food security and national security is to try and start to appeal to um, obviously a broader audience other than those um, that sit around uh, the agriculture table but also a broader audience within agriculture as well because there are there are i think far too few people Uh, that make policy, uh, that have input into policy and certainly then that make decisions and even fewer that make funding decisions um, that impact our preparedness for these things um, in the agriculture sector. And so the more awareness that we can start to build around the importance of of this type of stuff, but also how important it is to your business and to my business and it's relative, right? Like, you know, if I sit on a million dollar asset and John down the road sits on $10 million to the, you know, the corporate um, that sits on $100 million, Worth of assets, we're all in the same canoe, you know. If if um if it goes south on us, so we've all got as much to lose as each other. But um, taking an optimistic view, <laughs> that's um that's why we've worked so hard over on the safe meat side of things to uh, try and come up with solutions. Uh, we have come up with solutions. We put them to government, and uh, and of course various members of Safe have been advocating for for uh, for action on those solutions for a period of time. So, a-
2: Andrew um. Y- a- Scott Andrew, I just realised now that this Andrew, so confused a bit, um, Scottish Andrew mentioned um, about uh, pestivirus earlier on in the piece, uh, which obviously is a virus that's already endemic in Australia. And there's, there's a swag of other viruses that we know of and, and pathogens that cause issues. Um, Cattle you know, tick it, and whatnot. And, yeah, um, bovine respiratory disease there's a whole lot around that are, that are already kind of here pretty much and, are, and are actively being managed to some degree. Um, does SafeMed also focus in on, on those ones that are already here or is really that are, are you mainly looking at the ones we are free from now and trying to keep them at bay and deal with them or, or is there also an element of looking at the existing you know um, issues we have currently and, and helping to, to manage those processes as well? Yeah so um, the, short, the, the short answer is yes Matt but where it falls into the um,
1: um, the scope of you know food safety and so on. So if you've got diseases that are endemic that might have more of a production impact and less of a food safety impact in the supply chain, then that'll be managed by your state-based biosecurity um, departments, uh, departments of primary industries around the state, and so on. Um, but if they're their issues things like anthrax, um, um, issues to do with medicines and so on like that, that might have impacts of food safety in the supply chain, then definitely you know, the, the that's, and that's where we talk about the policy that sits behind the integrity system. So things like livestock production assurance scheme, um, you know, the NLS itself, you know, statuses that get applied to property identification codes, all of those things that, that sort of exist to manage those risks, um, I guess, as effectively as possible.
2: No, fair enough. That's that's a that's a, a reasonable point, Andrew. Um, I don't know if we're uh, if we're. I haven't been tr- keeping track of the time here, but we're probably um, we're probably getting close to the uh, to the cut off limit. Are we? Um,
0: I, oh, I, I I was just thinking about that fifty. Like, I've got that fifty billion in my head still, mm. and I was just thinking like we, we spoke recently to Fiona Simpson. Yeah, and, and we spoke to Mark Allison about the targets for the industry over the next 10 years to, yeah. to up to 2030 so the 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 aim is for 100 billion on farm yeah. value and an extra 200 billion off farm so the rest of the supply chain yeah but if you're talking about like uh, the food melt disease again the the, the the big ticket item the big one that would cause the uh, the, the the sort of the, the disastrous scenes that would make the local earthquake seem like a like a nothing, but mm. the, but the reality is that you could wipe off fifty billion from that. So any of the gains that we have through innovation, market access, all this type of stuff, yeah, could be eradicated by one dodgy sandwich being brought into the country.
1: Mm-hmm. Quite easily. yeah, yeah
0: absolutely. And, 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 and absolutely. It wouldn't, absolutely. And it wouldn't just be farmers; yes. it would be the whole supply chain.
1: Yeah, regional communities broadly. You know, to think about the regional economy, and then you know, by extension the the national economy, right? And then and then you put that in a post-COVID context. We rely very, very heavily on agriculture
2: now, more than ever,
1: to you know do its bit for the economy, for our economic recovery coming out of COVID. And that's not going to change anytime soon. The other big um, the other big heavy lifter in the economy is mining and resources. And you know, with particular reference to iron ore. Uh, one of our biggest iron ore customers is China. We've got an increasingly mm-hmm. fractious um, bilateral relationship with China, and, and France. You know, yes, yes, <laughs> you know, France as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, but we, the, the reality is, we it's it's prudent to look at risk, right? And without sounding, I'm probably naturally an optimistic person, but I probably sound very pessimistic on this on this on this call. But. Um, the reality is China could could uh, achieve a level of self-sufficiency, well, not self-sufficiency, but um, other um, reliance or less reliance on Australia for its iron ore uh, input requirements. And there's been a, a bunch of media around, I think it's Ever, Ever, I forget the name of the Green? company, it's a massive no, deal. Yeah, Evergrande. Ever Yeah, Evergrande. yeah the, the, the company that looks like it's teetering on the edge of collapse in China. There's something like 16 million unoccupied apartments in China. And while I was so sorry, sorry about to go off on tangents, but the relevance is... If the demand for our iron ore drops off from China alone, that's going to have a significant impact uh, in our economy. We know that they've already used um, other commodities as a lever against us and um, or to leverage us in certain directions. And so iron ore is absolutely at risk and of that as well. Now, take we're that all, out of we are already,
0: already seeing iron ore price. Oh, it's
1: you know, collapsed. Yeah. Yeah. it's yeah.
0: collapsed again. Well, we say it's collapsed, so, but it's collapsed to still above the long term average
1: that's right and and, and touch words. I think it's yeah that's right and I think the Treasury guides their, their estimates of its value were pretty conservative by comparison to the last big kick that it had but I mean the relevance is if it goes down if it gets tanked, then we're going to need our red meat and livestock sector our grain sector all of these other things to absolutely function as effectively you know as we possibly can uh, to make sure that we can continue to uh, enjoy the standard of living that we that we like to enjoy in this country. So, so, so these things—they might not seem linked, but they absolutely
2: are. You know? mm. And well, there'll the be extent- some time before the the tourism sector and the education sector, which are another two big export service type sectors. Uh, mm. You know, there'll be some time before they're up to full speed ahead again. Um, absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. And that—that's like I have this, you know,
1: this this um, this conversation with our SafeNet stakeholders. A lot of the policy that we deal with. Is really dry and heavy going, and you know a lot of people just you know it's struggle to get through it, right? Heavy going stuff. But the reality is the at, the outworking of it, it might not seem important, but it absolutely is. And, and the point that we've tried to make through that through that article and 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 changing people's perceived value of things like the NLI's is that they underpin seventy percent of the value at least of every single animal that walks off of your farm. Um, so if we're enjoying record high prices, uh, you know. Uh, you know, for our livestock, we can thank you know, our that little button in the ear and filling out an MVD correctly and uh, being your LPA member, you know, for that. I sound like a cheerleader for it, but that's the reality. Yeah, well,
0: if we, if we want to enjoy the markets that we have, then we need to have we can't have a premium market without a premium services assisting mm-hmm. to get there, which traceability is a, is a big part of it. You know, it's only, it's only so far that marketing goes. So, yeah. look, I think it's. That's probably a good point to end it on. I think, it, look, to, to summarise, uh, we are, you know, if we're looking at the doomsday clock, you know, we we still got a way to go before we, we get hit by something. We, we, to an extent, have been helped by COVID with reducing passenger numbers. Um, but the, the impact of, of a major outbreak of ASF or FMD would be catastrophic. It would be like a, let's call it, like an extended drought, really. For, for years and and that's why it's important that we we consider traceability it's not just a gimmick you know for uh putting you know a picture of uh, a farmer's face on a packet of bacon and saying you know this was produced by matt and andrew you know it's it's more than that it's about actually an insurance policy for when the worst case occurs is that is that a pretty good summary
2: of it
1: yeah, look, look, I think so. It's, uh, you know, these systems underpin um, what is a pretty integral part of the Australian economy and an awesome sector to be a part of, to boot, right? Um, but we have an opportunity, you know, as some folks say in peacetime to make sure that they're right. It's, you know, these, these systems are like any other piece of infrastructure you have on your farm. We you put up a fence 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. It's served its purpose, functioned really well. We've had to stand it back up from time to time, patch it, whatever. Um, but there comes a point where you just got to basically, you know, push it into a pile and go again. And yep. not to say that we're going to push our traceability system into a pile necessarily, but now's the time to make sure that it's working as effectively
0: now's the time as for possible a review.
1: because, yeah. yeah, that's right, because the implications um, are far broader than what we might have appreciated. And as I argue, uh, go, to, go to the food security of our nation, ultimately, our national security, um, and notwithstanding, you talk about just in time supply chains and so on. security about region so yeah well
0: on that note thanks very much for for coming along andrew thanks for taking the time out today to come and chat to us about a topic that, that matt and i actually really find quite engaging because it is such a big risk and and we're a believer in risk management and so so thanks for coming along to share your insights and and your information on this and hopefully. Hopefully this doesn't end up like world worlds, a radio show in the 1930s. And we've got a whole bunch of farmers worried about, you know, what's coming across the horizon. Uh, yeah. So again, thanks. Thanks for coming along. And, and we really appreciate you taking
2: your time out.
1: Yeah. Thank you guys. It's really good to be with you. It's, um, yeah, it's been good fun.
2: Much. Appreciated. Yeah, it's very, uh, very enlightening. It's, uh, it's um, been a good chat and, um, and much appreciated uh, listeners. Um, thanks for tuning in. And, and, uh, everyone out there see you when you got nothing on
0: ciao for now